0: I need to decide which version of my notes to pull out. This is when the sad truth of growing old is one of those things, you now need to use an iPad so that you can make the font a bit bigger. It's so sad. Now I'm really just trying to be like Chris, guys. <laughs> I just model after Chris, that's all I do. But um, it is a real joy. Let me start my time. Um, To be with you all this morning and just thank you. Thank you for coming through. We really don't take these moments lightly. Um, I don't take the privilege of bringing the word of God to you. Uh, These are precious scriptures and any one of this team could probably be up here and do a better job. Um, But I'm really humbled at the fact that I get to cover the section that we are covering this morning. And so thank you to Nick and the elders for just entrusting me with it. And uh, whenever I have the privilege of preaching or ministering in here or in a different context, I always like to ask God, God, what are you saying to the people? What do you want to say to this group of people? Because there's a lot that can be said even of the passage of Scripture that we are covering this morning. But what I like to do is I want to get on God's page. I don't want to come with my own ideas, I don't want to come with my own thoughts, and I trust and my prayers that all of those would disappear, even if they're in my notes, but the trust is that actually God's word, and whatever God is doing with this community, the journey that he's got us on, that's what I want to do, and that's the word that I want to bring this morning, as my technology starts to fail, or your jokes, just relax. And um, and so that is my joy this morning is to do that. And, um, and so I was asking God, I was saying, God, well, what is it? What is the big idea of this text? There's so many things and we're going to go through it verse by verse, line by line. But what is the main idea? What is the main thought that you've got for me that you want me to deliver to your people? And as I was driving to work, I think it was on the Thursday, um, the heading, if you want to go there, Philippians 2 from verse 12, if you're using the ESV, it says, lights in the world. The New King James Version, the heading is light bearers. The NLT says, shine brightly for Jesus. And uh, my heart and my desire this morning as we go through the text is that Paul would give us some keys and some handles of how you and I, as the believers of Christ, are to do that are to shine brightly for Jesus because if you're saved and you've declared your life, you've declared allegiance to Jesus, the idea is that the light of Christ is now in you and the heart of Jesus is that that light should be shining wherever we go. And so this morning as we go through that and as we look at these different keys, my trust is that we would then learn how to walk as those that have the light of Christ that is in us and shining through us. I remember hearing a story from uh, another preacher. It was the 14th of August, 2003. Him and his wife were in New York doing ministry. They were flying back from LaGuardia Airport and they were going home to Dallas. And all of a sudden, they were in the queue. Nothing was moving. Um, It seemed like nothing was working. The computers were all off. After a while, he goes and asks. He says, hey, listen, what's going on? What is the reason? We are about to take off and we haven't even boarded yet. And they said there's been a big power failure in Canada and it's worked its way down the East Coast. And so absolutely nothing is working. There's absolutely no power anywhere New York and as you can imagine there's thousands of people that are now being displaced and so now they've got to make a plan they phone their travel agent the travel agent says okay I've managed to get you to the Crown Plaza Hotel in LaGuardia you need to make your way through there so that you can have a place to stay. And so apparently it's not too far, I've never been there, but they make their way there, the streets are now very dark, they come into this hotel, and it's all candlelit, probably a very new experience for them. They walk into this hotel, they sign in by hand because the computers are not working, they're led to their room by a flashlight, and they walk inside, and the only trust and hope is that tomorrow will be a better day, hashtag ESCOM. And so... (laughs) Before they go down to sleep, the aircons are not working, so they want a bit of air. And so the wife goes, and as she opens the curtain, this light comes flooding through into their room. And as you can imagine, they are now very confused. How can it be that there's so much light amidst so much darkness? They probably, no, they weren't South Africans, but they've got the South African mentality in that we want to know. Unquiring minds want to know how is it that there's so much light coming from this one hotel when everything else is in pitch darkness. And so they get themselves ready, walk down the lobby, they walk across, they walk to the other side of the building, and as they begin to walk across the street, they can now see that there's life here. There's tables that are outside, people are conversing, laughing, listening to music, they're walking through the lobby, up into the foyer, the TVs are on, explaining exactly why New York is all in darkness, there's absolutely life. The place where they've come from is absolute darkness. There's nothing going on. It's very quiet. But here is a very different scenario and situation. And so they find the assistant manager and they say, what's going on? How is it that everything is dark? There's nothing that's working in New York. The airports are dark. The houses are dark. The businesses are dark. The streets are absolutely dark. And yet y'all are lit up. What is the story? Please would you tell us? And so he goes, it's very simple. When this building was built, Marriott Hotel, it was built with a gas generator inside. And so there is a power that is working outside that is not determined or that is not destructed by anything else that is going on on the outside. There is something working within that overrides what is not working without. And I'm sure you can agree with me that in South Africa we are in the midst of dark times and, and it seems like we've been here for a while. There is darkness that rages against you and me, the believer, those that are standing for righteousness and truth in this country. But it's not easy because darkness is all around. Yet in the midst of the darkness, you and I are called to let our light shine before men so that people might see the good works and do what? And glorify the Father that is in heaven. And so in the midst of all the darkness and the dark locations all around, your businesses or the the, the office parks or your neighborhoods or even some people in your families, their homes filled of darkness, you should be the prevailing light in those spaces because you and I are there. Sometimes I think we think in order to make a big difference for God, we've got to do big things. You've got to have a pulpit or you have to have a soapbox or be able to talk eloquently and know this and know that. But I feel like as we go through the text this morning, we're going to see Paul is not asking for those things. He's not asking for you to be this amazing preacher or do these amazing things. All he's calling us to is let your light shine before men. I think it's good that you and I from time to time evaluate our lives and ask the question, Are we just adding to all of the darkness that is around by responding and reacting in the exact same way as everybody else? Or is it so clear, it's it's undeniable that this person's life has been changed. He's been washed by the blood of the Lamb and the light that is Christ is in him and he's allowing that light to shine out. And so in the midst of all the darkness, like that Marriott Hotel, you and I shine as beacons of light in a world that is in darkness. And so let's get to our text. Philippians 2 from verse 12. It says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Big text. And so let's just go through it bit by bit. Alec Mottia, who's a theologian, says this about this uh, specific passage, but more so about that, therefore. He says, God's therefore, in verse 9, so if you look to verse 9, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. So the first part of verse 2 is all about Jesus, 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 what he's doing, what he's doing, and eventually God comes on the scene, and it says, therefore God, and so that's what he's talking about. God's therefore in verse 9 is matched by our therefore in verse 12, and that in a nutshell is what this passage is all about. He's saying, because of all of the things that have gone before, therefore this passage is about what comes next. Just as God assessed and then reacted to the worth of his son's life of obedience, so the Christian must ponder the example of Christ and therefore determine a worthy response. Just as God has done you and I to do, because Christ has done A, B, and C, therefore this is how you and I, as believers and disciples of Jesus, this is how you and I are to respond. We learn from the Bible not only what is true. In this case, uh, Philippians 2 from verse 1 to 11. So if we look, it says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, true. Comfort from love, true. Any participation in the Spirit, true. All of those things are true. He says we learn from the Bible not only what is true, but also how to respond to the truth. And that's the text that we will be looking at today. Not only um, looking at the example of Jesus, but also along what lines to make it real for you and I. How do you and I apply the stuff that we will read this morning? It's not just about listening to some sermon, and hopefully it's pretty decent and the Lord does what he needs to do. But it's actually that tomorrow you will go and apply this. On Tuesday, on Wednesday, and every single day that we live, we are applying the Scriptures and the Word of God to our lives. Let us therefore, he continues to say, let us therefore sense the proper seriousness of what lies in front of us, the chapters that we will cover, for Christ-likeness is the Christian's greatest concern. Christ-likeness is the Christian's greatest concern. If you've got any other concerns above Christ, then we have a problem. And if that is you this morning, can I encourage you that you would open up your heart and that there would be a longing in your heart to make Christ-likeness the highest goal that you can attain? It's not about your bank balance or having nice family holidays or driving a nice vehicle or having this amazing job. No, the the, the job or the the, the heart cry of the disciple of Christ is to become more and more like him. Christ-likeness. And here is the procedure of how to attain it. That's what we are going to cover this morning. John Marcoma says there are three goals to being an apprentice of Jesus. And the second goal is to become like Jesus. Become like your rabbi. And so I trust in all that we do, our longing and our heart cries that, Lord, I want to become more and more like you. Day in, day out, I want to become and reflect who you are. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his, in his book, Cost to Discipleship, it is necessary to obey as a disciple. It is necessary to obey as a disciple. And unfortunately, I'm sad to say there are many believers and Christians that are walking around. They are not obeying the commands of the Lord. And I know it's quite a hectic statement to say, but it's just the truth. How do I know that? Well, if you look at these nations that are apparently God-fearing nations, but you see God nowhere near some of what goes on in the nations, with all of the corruption and all of the crime and all of the nonsense that goes on, you're like, how can it be that this nation says that they follow Christ, that Christ is the pivotal, the highest point, but yet there's all of this drama that happens. Why? Because, and I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is there. I'm talking about walking out as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We have to obey. And so again, Paul looks, he, he says, well, look at Christ's example. If, 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 that's, if he's the highest point, we're going to look at his example and do exactly what he did. So what did Christ do? 2 verse 8, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Jesus Christ, the one, he's the very reason that we're here. He's sustaining all the things that we have done and will do. It's his grace and his mercy that is poured out to us. Jesus, what does he do? He says, I'm going to become obedient to my father. Because of Christ's humility and obedience, this is how you and I are to respond as followers of Christ. When Jesus commissions his disciples, he could have told them a whole lot of things, but towards the end, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. I want to t- teach them to obey, not to recite, not to memorize Not to be able to have arguments with this one who's a minion and this one who's a Calvinist. That's not what he says to them. Reciting is good and memorizing is good. But what he teaches them, he says, what is important is that you obey what I've commanded you. I've said this many times. Is that information without application will keep you from transformation. It's no good at being in your head. The idea is that it seeps into your heart and it begins to change and form the way that you live. And so he says, much more in my absence He's commending them. He's saying, well done for walking when I was with you, but an even bigger well done now that you are doing it and you continue to do it, even though I am not there. One's ability to obey in the presence of the one who gave them the instruction is a great indication of their true character. It's an indication of who they are. I'm sure those that have got kids will know. It's one thing to tell your kids, don't touch the stove and you're busy watching them. They don't touch it. The minute you go out there, you know what they're gonna go and do. Because their character hasn't formed yet, and, or their character is being developed. And so how's your character, and how's my character? Paul has left them. He's no, he's no longer there. He cannot watch every single thing that they do, but he's commending them. He's saying, well done for bang while I'm there, but much more in my absence. He then goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this sentence can be a little bit tricky, and so I'm going to do my very best just to try and explain it quite quickly without getting into a hole. But those two words, work out, the Greek actually only has one word for that, and please excuse my Greek pronunciation here, katagazomi, or katagazoma. Zulina, Zulina, no, no, not Zulina, (laughs) it would probably be even worse than Zulidari. Katagazoma, that's the Greek word for work it out. What does it mean? It means to bring something to full completion. That's what it means. And so back in the ancient times, when you use that word, the picture that would come to people's minds for those that were around was of a field. And so if your family was in, I don't know, apples or whatever, whatever that they produced and you inherited the field, your father, your mother, whoever it was, has done a whole lot of work that you no longer need to do. But there is still some effort that is required on your behalf. And so you need to go and till the soil and prepare it and fertilize it and throw the seeds and, and keep watch, keep watching water and water. And then eventually you will then pull out a harvest and then you repeat the same the next season. There is still some work that is required of him who has now received this inheritance. Or say you're not well and you go to the doctor and you need to have an op. He diagnoses you. This is the problem. Mark. you need, oh, Mark's gone. Um, mark has gone. Mike, you need a new uh, knee. And so they go in and they do all of the work that they need to do. But Mike, over the next couple of weeks and months, now needs to go to rehab. He goes to Nathan Way and Nathan Way is trying to sort his knee out. There was still work that Mike needed to do, even though the surgery, he had nothing to do with the surgery except for be there and just lie there. He had to be there. And so the surgeons did whatever they needed to do but Mike still needed to put in some effort in terms of getting him back to normal. That is this idea of work it out, is that there's work that has been done, but you and I are invited to partner with God to continue to work it out. The NLT puts it this way, put into action God's saving work in your lives. God's saving work is done, it's complete, there's nothing you can do to take away or to add for it, it's done. But the idea is that, is that you would put into action, it requires some effort on your part and in my part. 2 Peter, if we can put that up, please. 2 Peter 1 from verse 3 to 5 says this, "'His divine power has granted to us all things "'that pertain to life and godliness "'through the knowledge of Him "'who called us to His own glory and excellence "'by which He has granted to us "'precious and very great promises, "'so that through them you might become partakers "'of the divine nature, "'having escaped from the corruption "'that is in the world because of sinful desire.'" For this very reason, up until here, you and I have done nothing. It says it's his divine power. It's his knowledge. He's the one that has called us to his own glory and his own excellence. He's the one that has granted these precious promises. You and I have done sweet nothingness. But then there is a part that we are to play. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement or to add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, yes, I have received them. They are mine, but they need to increase. That's the idea of work it out. Then he continues, it says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. It says, work hard. Sometimes as believers, I think we think, well, I'll just leave it up to Jesus. He needs to do the rest. I said the prayer. Jesus needs to do. No, you and I, there is some effort that is required on your part. At times it is difficult to walk in the faith, but you and I are called to work hard faithfully to show the results, actually to show the world, actually we are those that have been saved and sanctified. Peter and I were talking about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, um, Jesus sees Zacchaeus. He says, come, I'm going to have a meal with you this evening. Zacchaeus gathers his cronies. The the religious leaders are throwing their toys out the cart. Jesus is having a good time. And eventually he ends off that encounter and says, salvation has come to this house. And so the work of Jesus has been done. Salvation has been offered as a gift to Zacchaeus. But then Zacchaeus, in his response to what Jesus, and it doesn't tell us exactly what the conversation says, but he says, actually, in response to this great salvation that I've received, I'm going to give away half of what I own. I'm going to pay back four times as much from anybody that I've defrauded. That is the work of salvation. You and I are working it out. Zacchaeus is working it out. He's realized that his lifestyle is not right. It's not in line with what Jesus is preaching. And so he needs to work it out. That's what he needed to do. What about you and me? Two other quick thoughts about this passage, working out our salvation. Most uh, scholars believe that Paul is speaking in the context of unity within this community, which we've seen before and will continue to see. We'll see these glimmers of Paul speaking about unity, and it says this. In order to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to remind ourselves that his interest is in the context of social harmony in the community of believers. The entire context for Paul's imperative to work out your salvation has to do with unity in the church. His previous imperatives call for unity, to stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Paul is going on about unity in this text. And so what does that look like? He's talking about unity for you and I. That's why we love together as a community. If we are to look at Jesus, if Jesus is our penultimate example, then we are to look to him and go, how is it that we should be walking out these things according to the example that you have set? Unity is worked out in community. It's not worked out outside of community. You and I need to be joined together. That's why we go on and on and on about community. We love together because that's what Jesus did. Jesus could have sorted everything in heaven. Jesus could have come down to earth and just spoken some words and zap, 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 and everything is done. No, what does he decide to do? He sets an example for you and me. He gathers some men and some women, and they begin to gather in their homes, and they begin to open up the scriptures. That's what we do at Life Group. If you're not in a Life Group, can I I ask you, can I plead with you? It's part of obeying. If you want to be a disciple, a disciple is one that obeys. If we want to obey, we want to be involved with what God is doing in our community. That's what we do on Tuesday. We open up the scriptures. We share a meal together. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And so on Thursdays, that's what we do. We gather to raise our voice. It is hard work to pray at times. But can I call you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, your heart should be to do the things that he did. And he calls us to be a community that prays. Jesus brings them in together and he begins to teach them and begins to train them to get them ready to go out. Daniel will be preaching. It's Apprentice Sunday next week. And so Daniel will be getting up. The idea is that Daniel has been trained from the youth guys and from the guys in the office, from uh, leading the roots team. And so we train and we train and we mold and we train and then we send people out. That's why we've got a board that says, send me. I trust that you've prayerfully considered, Lord, where do you want me to go this year? Why? Because if we want to be disciples of Jesus, we have to look at the example that he said. And Jesus says, hey, go out into all of the world. Second one, very quickly. Scholars will often speak of salvation um, because it can get a little bit tricky. They speak about it in three tense, the past, the present, and the future. Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. Meaning it's not us, it's nothing that we did. Jesus dying on the cross had nothing to do with us. Jesus is the one that fulfilled it. And so that's the past tense. Um, For by grace you have been saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the cross is folly to those that are perishing, but to us who... Are being saved. This is Paul who is saved, writing to the Corinthian church, a bunch of believers, but he's saying to those who are being saved, or to us who are being saved. Romans 3 13, verse 11 says, Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's writing to this group of uh, believers and he's saying, before you even knew Jesus, salvation was far. Then you received, you came a little bit closer. Then you were working out your salvation, you came a little closer. Until the day that Jesus comes back again and takes uh, takes us to be with him, we are working out our salvation with fear and with trembling. And so we have been, we are being, and we will be saved. Is that clear? Does that make sense? I hope so. Philippians 1 verse 6, I think, kind of encapsulates this idea. And this is Paul, and he says, I am sure of this. He is certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who begins it. He invites us in. He gives us the gift of salvation. You and I are to work it out with fear and trembling. And on that day, it will be wrapped up. And fear and trembling, one scholar puts it this way, this is not a fear of a lost sinner before a holy one, although there is that fear, but that's not what the writer is going on in this specific text. But the fear of a true child before the most loving of fathers, not a fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt that we might do to him. It's not, I'm I'm scared, so I must go to church. I'm scared, so I must tithe. No, it's not out of fear. It's because we have awe and reverence of who God is. Even this morning as we begin to look at this text, I'm humbled at the fact that God would count me worthy to unpack the scripture before us as a community. I come with fear and trembling because I want to do justice, not because I'm striving for anything. No, because I know that he is holy and worthy of all my praise and so much more. And so this language is seen all the way through the Old Testament and it indicates it in awe at the presence of God. Exodus 15 verse 16. The Jewish people were in awe at the fact that God would come and sup with them. Deuteronomy 2.25. Actually, that this God of the universe who's ruling and reigning, the one that has put all of this together for some reason, has decided to put his affection on this community. They did not deserve it. They were a wicked people. But somehow God says, I want to dwell with you. I want to be your God. And would you be my people? Actually, they come with fear and trembling. Not because of fear. and saying, Lord, because you are so holy and so worthy. So much more to say. Isaiah 66 six two says, but this is the one to whom I look. This is God talking again to the Israelites. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jeremiah 33 verse eight. Everybody okay? You're very quiet. Nick, now I know what this feels like. Yo. Brothers are chub still here. I'm trying, Nick. I'm having a go. I leave on Wednesday, so anyway. Um, Jeremiah 33, verse eight, it says this, I will cleanse, this is again God speaking, this is his promise to his people. He says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sins against me. And I will forgive all of the guilt of their sins and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy and praise and glory before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I've done or that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for it. It's not out of fear. He says, this will be a sign to all of the nations. What will be a sign? His goodness and his mercy. It's not his fear, his judgment, all of the it. No, it's because uh, of his goodness and his mercy and the things that he has done. And their response is to come with fear and trembling in front of this almighty God. Let's carry on reading. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So verse 12 and 13 are linked together. It's an effect and cause. Our work is the effect. God's work is the cause of our work. And so without the work of Christ, you and I cannot work anything out. That's why we must put our faith. We must put our belief. We must put our faith in him and he comes into us. And it's because of the work that he puts into us that we are able to work this out. We work because of God's work. God's indicative, which is God's work, makes it possible to fulfill the imperative, which is his command, given to you and to me to work. Without God's prior work directing and empowering our work, all our work is meaningless and in vain. All human efforts is in vain unless it is energized by God. Meaning outside of God, there is no way that our work counts for nothing. Psalm 127 verse one says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Unless the Lord builds his house, it's our desire as an eldership team that the Lord will build this house. Not our clever ideas, not the latest trick that comes from the States. No, God, what are you wanting to do with your bride and your people? They do not belong to us. We do not want to get our hands in the mix of things. What are you doing? And we want to join in with what you are doing. Unless the Lord builds his house, the laborers labor in vain. 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Other translations speak of in, amongst whom you are to shine as lights in the world, which is where we got our heading from this morning. And Paul, once again, is stirring in their very hearts this idea of unity. It's underlying there, he's telling them, you cannot be those that are unified and grumble and moan and find fault and complain either to God or to one another. Saying because the minute that we do that, we break the unity amongst us, God's blessing will be removed from us as a community. And so Paul is fighting all the way through this book. Yes, it is a joyous letter, but he's fighting for them to uh, keep the unity, the bond of peace between one another. Because he knows how detrimental it will be if there are brothers that are fighting. And he does, um, in uh, chapter 4, he does speak to two individuals. Very bold. He calls out two individuals. He says, you guys need to sort out your nonsense. For the sake of unity. For the sake of God's blessing being with you as a community. Can we go to John 17? Verse 20. And this is Jesus praying for his disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples that are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. This is Jesus' prayer. That they may all uh, be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's why Paul is fighting for unity here. The way that the world believes that Jesus was sent is if you and I are unified. And I'm sure you'll agree with me, there's a lot that at the moment, because of flesh and humanness, that actually um, there's disunity in the church. And the world looks on and goes, well, this bunch can't even get it together themselves. Why would I want to join anything like that? And so it's so important that you and I maintain unity with one another. In this house red point, if, if somebody, if you're holding a grudge, if you are withholding forgiveness, would you go this morning and sort it out? in order that the unity of Christ may remain upon us and we may walk in the blessing of all that God has got for us. The fruit of that, lacking that unity, of them grumbling, moaning and complaining and pointing fingers, is that their witness is now ineffective. They are no longer able to shine as lights. They are no longer able to do the very thing that they were created to do. Why? Because they're moaning and complaining and grumbling and there is disunity in the community. Would we be those that would go and sort it out? Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is the word of life, brothers and sisters. This is the word of life that he's speaking. That we would hold on to this. I'm amazed as I see some of my contemporaries or some of my friends just make decisions willy-nilly. I'm asking, well, what did, what, did, what did your leader say? Or what did the Word say? Not even a thought to, what does God's Word say about this? Should I take this job? Should I marry that person? Should I buy that house? Well, this is where we find our answers, ladies and gentlemen. We've got to be well acquainted with the Scriptures. The Word of life has two distinct sides. It is the message which, um, which both tells of life and also imparts the life which it tells. And so what the writer is saying, that this here speaks about Christ. And so it tells us and it informs us who Christ is, the things that he enjoys, the things that he longs for you and I. And as that happens, that life comes in us, and as a light does, it then shines outside of us. That is the idea of being in the Word. Without this life-giving Word, Christian character is impossible. It is impossible for you and I to be formed, to become more and more like Christ unless you and I are in the Word and taking our example from Jesus Christ himself. Another scholar puts it this way. He says, the word is about the life of Christ and it generates life in all those who hear and believe in it. This word is about the life. Everything that happens, every single page is about Christ. And what happens is that when you and I receive, what it begins to do is it begins to generate inside of us and we begin to look more and more like him as we surrender our lives and our will to his lordship and his reign. Paul calls for the attitude of believers to be transformed by focusing on Christ. That's why he starts off, uh, chapter two, verse five to 11. He focuses on Christ. This is what Christ has done. This is what Christ has done. This is what Christ has done. Therefore, this is how you and I are to respond. We are transformed by beholding Christ. The last two weeks, I feel like I've lost rhythm in my relationship with Christ. Nothing bad, nothing, you know, but it just hasn't been the same. I was like, ah, it's just battling and battling. I'm like, God, what is going on? Eventually what I did, I said, okay, let me go back to to ground zero. Let me go back to the word. And I began to read the word and I began to read the word and I began to read the word. And all of a sudden, all this, whatever was going on inside of me, fighting with my flesh, my own sin, uh, just my own wretchedness. All of a sudden, those things began to disappear as I began to behold Jesus and mesmerized by who he is, his love and his grace and his mercy for me and for you. And all of a sudden, this angst that I was carrying, this anxiety that I was walking around with began to disappear. Why? Because I was focusing on Christ. That's what Paul calls the church to do here. He says, focus on Christ. Focus. As you begin to read the word, it is all about him. And as I began to read the word and open up the scriptures, it led me to worship. And so I just put worship music on every morning before I went to work. And I just began to worship. I began to exalt him, not singing about myself and woe is me and I need this and I need that. No, I began to sing about him, who he is, his attributes. And joy began to fill my heart. And that is why Paul is saying you need to look at Christ. Paul urges the church to demonstrate their firm grasp of the message about Christ, by the way they live out their life of Christ in relationship to one another. I had to demonstrate. As I began to get in the Word, there was a demonstration. I couldn't help myself. I was very emotional. I felt like God was undoing me. Moments of tears, which is not foreign for those of you that have been around. Just weeping in His presence, enjoying who He is. That led me to worship, to glorify, to exalt. And That's why we love to worship as a community, because that's what worship does. That's what Nick was encouraging us to do this morning. If you are down the ways and the worries and and the darkness of the world is around you, man, we just begin to focus on him and make his name great. So I come to land, verse 17 and 18. It says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul at this moment is referring to an Old Testament system, this drink offering that was initiated. Once they got into the promised land, they would then start doing the drink offering. And all it was is that they would bring their lamb or their goat or whatever it was, and they would have a drink offering on the side. And as this offering is going up at the incense, they would pour out this drink offering. And so Paul is saying, man, you guys are doing a sterling job. You're a bang. You're doing the things that I commanded you to do when I was there. You've continued to do them. All I'm doing is I'm being poured out. I've given my life. It is a joy that I've had the privilege of partnering with you. Nick and Katz, not to point attention to them, we will go to Highway Church, I think, next week. And the Highway Church, which is a church that we partner with an amazing community, they are doing what God's called them to do. But what is Nick doing? Nick is going and he is partnering together with them. He's pouring himself out. I'm sure there's going to be seven or eight sessions. Uh, Old George, who's leading the church, will chill back and relax. And Nick is going to do all. What is Nick going to do? He's going to pour himself out for the sake of that community. That's what Paul is saying here. He's pouring himself. And he's saying, man, it is a joy for me to pour myself out. It is not a burden. I'm not going to moan. I'm not going to complain. But this is what it means to be in community. This is what it means to partner together. I want to pour myself out as the band comes up, Mano, please. Paul says that he had counted nothing but joy, that he has labored in weariness, sitting in a prison cell, sitting in a prison cell, bound up, and what are they doing? They are offering praise and worship to Jesus because of the work that is being done. Paul, again, even here, references Philippians 2, verse 7. He says, of Christ, he says, he emptied himself, which means there's absolutely nothing left. Jesus gave absolutely everything for you and for me. And and so Paul is saying, if Christ is our example, if Christ-likeness is what we are aiming for, if that is the standard, that even I, I'm willing to pour myself out. I'm willing to pour, to give of myself for the sake of the community. rejoices in the fact that he was able to give of himself. Can I ask us to stand? As I drove in here yesterday, still trying to piece the message together, wondering, God, what are you wanting to do? What are you wanting to say? I felt to end off in this way, but to say that actually Christ is worth you and I giving our absolute everything. I thought to myself, if I drove out here this morning and was in an accident and i died i trust that i did what christ had called me to do that when i get to heaven and i look at the task and all of the things that christ had called me to do i trust that i've done absolutely everything i've left nothing undone i've left it all on the field as it says i've given absolutely everything I've not just come to be a spectator, which is what next Sunday night is all about. I'm not just sitting on the sidelines watching other people. My arms folded and tuning and moaning. Oh, ref, you should have done this. Oh, that player should have done that. Believe me, I was watching Man United the other day and it was a good spiritual lesson. But actually, it's so easy to do that. But Paul is saying, man, I want to pull myself out. And maybe my lasting impression with you this morning is this. How do you want to finish your time here on earth? Pan, can you put up that first photo, please? Is that what you want to look like? Brothers are looking dapper. Their suits are kitted out. They've shaved. They've got glasses. Probably millennial glasses, so there's no lenses. But they're looking to the nines. They are just looking so good. I think sometimes the way that believers live their lives, I think people want to enter heaven looking like that. Or, Pan, can you do the other one? Do you want to look like that? as you breathe your last, knowing that you have poured yourself out for the King and his kingdom. There was nothing that was too hard. There was no ask that was too much. I've given of myself. This photo is taken from a movie, if I remember correctly, and um, all of his colleagues or whatever, the army was just down and people had died and injured. And he begins to rescue people one by one taking them down this embankment on a rope. Goes back up, fetches another one, comes back down. Says, Lord, give me strength for one more. Give me strength for one more. I will put my life on the line. The enemy is advancing. There's bullets flying all over the show. Maybe I'll enter heaven with a couple of bullet wounds, hopefully spiritually. Maybe physically, who knows. I just want that picture just to stay in our minds for a second how will you finish your life here on this earth? Would you look like you've just stepped off a ramp modeling in Milan? Would you look like that? Bruised, battered, scarred, tired, weary. You've got nothing left to give. Paul says, I counted in absolute joy. Red Point Church this morning, even as we sing this last song, maybe you need to do some business with God. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. Maybe you need to repent and say, man, I've sat on the sidelines for too long. I look like that previous photo. I'm looking good. I'm living my best life on this side of eternity. i want to say, that's not the picture. This is the picture. And I don't know what it is for each and every one of us, but I want to call us to continue to move forward. I want to call us to continue to lay down our lives for the King and His kingdom because He is worthy of it.